So we've covered the burnt offering, we've covered the grain offering, we also covered something called the peace offering, or um, what I titled it is the well-being offering. It was an offering that was given because there's peace in my relationship with God, and I am there because I just, I'm so thankful, and I'm full of thanksgiving because of what he's done. Today, I want us to look at Leviticus chapter 4. Um, and if you want to, you can turn in your Bibles there, but we'll have the verses for you in a few minutes on the screen. Both Leviticus chapter four and Leviticus chapter five deal with sacrificial laws governing something called expiation, okay? That's a big word that we probably don't use at the water cooler. You might've read it before, but really what it means is to make amends for something done And in this case, it's something done unintentionally wrong. So what does unintentionally mean? That seems pretty basic, right, to think about that. Unintentionally means done without intent. You did something by accident, or you did something by mistake, or by negligence. How many of you have ever been negligent? Ever made a mistake? Raise your hand. Ever done something by accident, right? We've all done that. I love what Alexander Pope, the 18th century poet said. It's been quoted uh, through Shakespeare and other places, but he sums it up in this simple phrase in one of the poems he writes. And he says this, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And so when we think about that, we realize that we are all fallible. We, We all fail in certain areas and we make mistakes. Sometimes we do things wrong intentionally, If you have kids or grandkids, you know this to be true. And sometimes we actually just break a law or a rule or something as a result of maybe not realizing we were doing it. And so I want to talk today about what this looks like in Leviticus chapter four. The point is this, that we all make mistakes and God knew this from the very beginning. Amen. He knew it in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He knew, and that wasn't an innocent mistake. That was an intentional thing, but he knew in the character of giving a will to a created being that if they had a will, they could choose to do wrong, whether it was by mistake or intentional. And so he gives the Israelites a process to make amends for the things that they did wrong unintentionally. So go with me to Leviticus chapter four. We're gonna look here verses one through four, and we're gonna take, uh, take a few minutes to digest a few of these verses and point out a couple things. It says this in the first verse, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, say this, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. I want to point out to you something in these verses that's very important. There is nowhere that God allows or is pleased or excited about ever receiving in the history of mankind that's written in the word of God, anything that is tainted, 
half done, without excellence, or anything like that. God, all the time, he corrects his people through the prophets. He tells them, even in the days of Leviticus, don't you bring me the maimed sheep that you know you can't get any money for at the market. You bring me the best of what you've got, and I promise you, I'll bless you. In fact, when we talk about giving, and we talk about that in a monetary way today, because we don't give sheep to the church and that kind of thing, but in those days in Malachi, the Bible actually says that God, in the only place in scripture, he says, test me, try me in this. Other times he says, I'm so mad at those Israelites, they keep testing my patience. He he says that repeatedly. But in the giving aspect, he says, you just test me and see if I won't bless you abundantly. So I wanna point out this in this passage where it says if they sin, if the priest has sinned unintentionally, he's to bring a bull and it's gotta be without blemish to the Lord. And it says therefore a sin offering. Okay, look down if you've got your verse. We don't have it on the screen, but look down in your passage. Verse 13, it says this. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, do this. Then in verse 22, it says, when a leader sins, sins unintentionally, do this. In verse 27 of chapter four, it says this. If any of the common people sin unintentionally, then do this. So he's giving them a process all the way through. But I want you to think about this, which is the title of today's message, and that is the sin offering. You'll notice there that the the word we've continued to use so far is the word unintentionally. The translation for sin offering is a bit misleading. As I studied this in depth, I come to the understanding that the sin offering really is an error when we've translated the scripture from the original languages. They've chosen to use the word sin offering. Now this is, let me be clear, this is not your pastor trying to rewrite your Bible. I am simply trying to help you understand your Bible, amen? So I want you to think about this. When someone offered these sacrifices, it did secure atonement and forgiveness but these sacrifices are only effective when it comes to unintentional sin. So the Bible tells us in chapter four, whenever an individual Israelite from the lowest class, a common person, whoever it is, all the way up to the high priest, if they sinned and they were guilty of an inadvertent offense or they failed to do something that the law required, then a sacrifice was required to make amends. I find it interesting that sacrifice and repayment are commanded. So if I stole something or I did something, whether it's intentional or unintentional, the word of God throughout the history of the Israelite people included sacrifice to make it right, but also if the person's still alive or their family's still alive, repayment and something done in order to try to make amends. So whether it was committed against God or against his people, I want you to think about it like this. Think about it in those days, they lived in tents. They traveled quite a bit, right? (laughs) They're in the desert. They're not in the promised land yet. They haven't built structural dwellings. They're living in tents. So you're hanging out with grandpa in the tent. Grandpa has a heart attack, falls to the floor. You try to revive grandpa and you realize grandpa has died. You have now broken unintentionally the law because you've touched a dead body. 
Well, then even worse still, somebody's got to take the dead body and get it out of the tent to go prepare it for burial. And those people would be unclean as well. So a sin offering would be necessary. I want you to understand it's not about deliberate moral offenses. The sin offering, and that's why I say the translation is a little bit off. What I'd offer to you when you understand and look through the scripture is to understand it as a purification offering. It is making right something that was done wrong, but it's with this very, very significant word and understanding, it was unintentional. It's about being unintentionally defiled. You know, Leviticus chapter 12 actually says that after a woman gives birth, she's to offer a sin offering. What? (laughs) Well, there's no sin that's been committed. That's just a normal process in life. She's uh, with her husband and she has a baby later. She gives birth. There's no moral offense in that. Yet Leviticus 12 says you got to bring a sin offering. So when we hear sin, what do we think of? We think of stuff in the New Testament that we know not to do. We think of greed. We think of anger. We think of the works of the flesh. We think of adultery. We think of all of those things, and we put that into this. So that's why your pastor's been telling you, when we read Leviticus, I want you to be thinking in terms of the people who were first reading this. They didn't understand necessarily that Jesus was going to come later, and they didn't have the same understanding of sin that we have today. So back then when they translated for the original Bibles that we have as translations, they could have said purification rather than sin because again, there's no moral offense there with something like grandpa dying in the tent or a woman giving birth or things like that. So when you read that, I want you to read it with that understanding. These sacrifices did not apply for defiant, premeditated crimes or sins. In fact, the laws of the Torah, okay, that's an English transliterated word. It's the law of Moses, what we understand to be the laws that God gave to Moses. Inside of them, there is no sacrifice for intentional or premeditated sin. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament laws is there the ability for Mandy to say, I'm intentionally going to be angry, I'm going to say these words, I'm going to commit this wrong, and then for her to just show up to church the next day and bring a sacrifice. There's, there's nowhere where somebody can premeditated plan out and plot out somebody's murder and then kill them and say, hey, I'm going to bring the best bull I've got, but God's going to be happy when I show up with my sacrifice. There's never anything in the Old Testament for that. So stop and think about this. When's the last time you intentionally sinned? And a hush comes across the crowd. Uh, Yeah, hey, listen, your pastor is preaching, I'm a normal guy with normal problems and a normal life just like you. I'm telling you, it hasn't been long since I intentionally sinned, since I did something that I, I probably knew in my head was wrong, yet I still chose to do it. And so we, we've got to understand that in the Old Testament, there was no room for that. In fact, if you killed somebody, they would send you to a, a thing called the city of refuge where the people who were what they called the manslayers, 
you ever wonder about how we get some of our terminology in judicial law, manslaughter comes from the Old Testament because there was this thing that they titled someone as a manslayer if you killed somebody. If you killed somebody during the time of the high priest, then you would be sent away to a city of refuge where you were not allowed to leave that place until the next high priest, until that current high priest died and the next one came to power. Now that was the punishment. You were ostracized from the community. You were stripped of everything. That was kind of like their prison, if you want to think about it like that. So that's the, it's either that or they immediately kill you for the offense. And you could get killed for adultery, for anything else that was listed there in scripture that said, these are those offenses that you can actually die for. So stop and think about this. There was no, cause we're in the new Testament, praise God. We're in the days after Jesus. There was no remedy or ritual that absolved people from intentional sin. There is now, but there wasn't then. Numbers 35 illustrates the idea of unintentional sin, even with something as serious as taking a human life. I kind of gave you that already, talking about the cities of refuge. But if the death was unintentional, provision would be made for you. If it was an accident, Numbers 35, you can read the whole thing. It literally says, like, if you took something and you were working on a building or something and you dropped something and the guy died, we know you didn't murder him with evil intent, then we'll make a provision for that. They had a system where God had devised for them to be able to exercise exercise justice, but there was no way to deal with or get around those things that were done intentionally, only to receive the punishment of death or to be ostracized from the community forever. So the Old Testament is clear, though, about something that I want to be clear about, too. And it talks about this in several places. In the King James Version, which is what I grew up learning and memorizing, Uh, We don't read that very often anymore. It's kind of difficult language to talk about. But it says throughout Leviticus, if you sin with a high hand towards God, it gives you warnings about this. And what that would mean if you ever come across that phrase is that it would mean kind of defiantly shaking your fist at God. Like, I'm doing this and I don't care. With that kind of attitude, with no remorse. So the Old Testament is clear that if that happened, there was no sacrifice for us. These purification offerings were for people who committed unintentional offenses. Listen to what Isaiah chapter one says. You can go there at some point in your leisure and read the entirety of it. But I want you to understand something that God spoke to Israel. He tells them to purify their hearts and to do what's right rather than bring a sacrifice. And we're to do the same today. We're not to sin intentionally and then say, okay, I'm just gonna make it right or I'm gonna pray for forgiveness after this. How many of you spouses have ever heard that phrase uh, that forgiveness is better or easier than permission? Yeah, Um, whatever, okay? We, We have done those sorts of things in our life. But listen, in Isaiah chapter one, God is telling the people of Israel, he's saying, listen, I... Like, I don't need all these animals to be coming here and to be slaughtered. I would much rather your heart to be right. 
He was giving us an eye into the future of what God wanted to do. In fact, in other places like Ezekiel, he says, my goal is that someday I'll be able to take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. The only way he could do that was an internal change, not something where I externally brought a sheep or a lamb or a goat or whatever to the temple. It was because of me choosing inside of my heart to want to do what's right. So we should not think that God is merely pleased when we serve in the church today or when we give in the church today and live however we want to live outside of his laws. But that when we do serve and when we do give, that we do it with the right heart. I love what we talk about when we talk about giving. You've heard it a million times. God loves a cheerful giver. How can you be happy about it? If you've got the right attitude, you will. Amen? So Isaiah's language points to the problem of people committing deliberate wrong and then bringing a sacrifice as if it would take care of the problem. The prophets told them, no, that that really doesn't take care of your hard hearts. What God wants is a new heart, a different heart inside of you. So passages like that feed off of this idea that that sacrificial system is really about unintentional violations, not defiant sins. But I want to apply this to us today. Think about a Jew who heard the message of the gospel for the very first time. Think about a Jew who grew up going to the synagogue, having listened. All of us who've been raised in Christian homes, we know the Sunday school lessons and we can talk about Joseph and his coat of many colors. We've got all of that stuffed into our memory banks. So think about a Jew who was growing up, who understood the Levitical system, who understood when he saw all of the animals going to the synagogue, the temple before it was known as a synagogue today. But when he saw that happening and his parents explained to him or his grandparents explained, think about him hearing for the first time that Jesus, that what Jesus did, what one person did, covers every possible sin, whether it's intentional or unintentional. Everything can be cleansed and purified by the blood of this one man. That's a really powerful thought, that you could be cleansed, purified, and you could be made fit as sacred space, because that's what we've been talking about. They're killing animals and putting the blood on the altar. They're trying to prevent de- you know, contamination and that kind of thing because of the way that God had laid out that system. But even if you've sinned defiantly with a high hand to God and said, I'm committing this and I don't care, even if you did that, God would forgive you because of one man dying. That's, it's really like, it's life changing and earth shaking for them to have understood that they could be a new creation and a new creature. Concepts like that would have been totally foreign to the Jews in the first century during those times. They would have known about the Levitical system and still been living inside of it and the Old Testament law. So it was so far beyond whatever the Old Testament had that it would have had a shocking effect to them. Think about that. I can actually, if I'm a Jew and I'm thinking through this, I can actually be forgiven and God looks at me as though I'm pure now. 
the apostles would say, yeah, that's exactly what we've been trying to tell you, right? That's the point of what happened on the cross. There's nothing like that sort of thinking that's in the Old Testament. So it would have been a game changer for the people during the first century to understand. And it would have been a game changer for them in their own families to start experiencing division where a dad would have heard the gospel message and chosen to believe in Jesus the Christ. And yet a mom would hold on to the Le- Le- Levitical system and she would say, no, I, I, don't, I don't understand how that works. There would have been separation in homes and families and communities as a result of this. But it's amazing to think that in the New Testament, there is no restriction in forgiveness. I tell my students all the time throughout the school year, I tell them stories about people like Sam Berkowitz. If you wanna Google him and look him up, you can. He's the son of Sam is the name that he was given. He believes and others believe as well that he was possessed by demons and then he killed multiple people in New York in the 80s. He did that, he believes his cat spoke to him. He has like, there was some crazy stuff. To this day in prison, he's been leading hundreds of men in Bible study weekly and possibly thousands of people have been saved as a result of God changing his life. There's videos of him that were shown on CNN of the redemptive change. He's still, to my knowledge, serving out a sentence that will take him till the day probably that he dies. But God redeemed even a serial killer I tell my students that, I tell you that. God can forgive you for the little lie. He can also forgive you for the large thing. He can free you from drug addiction. He can change everything in your life if you allow him to. So this was earth shattering for them. The New Testament is now focused, if we start to look at that, it's focused on what we would say moral absolution. That even the things that I deliberately rebel against God, I can actually still receive his forgiveness. It's not just about decontamination. But I say these words of warning, just because that is true. I love what Paul says. He says, just because grace abounds doesn't mean you should keep testing the limits of how far you can go and keep sinning and just being like, ah, I'll just go to church on Sunday and ask Jesus to, no, we're not to live like that. If we're living like that, I would say, I would venture to say, we're not truly redeemed in our heart. We don't truly understand what it means to allow him to change us because everything we do should be done out of love for him. Out of that relationship that's built and that love that's fostered between he and I, that's where my heart hurts when I know that I've hurt him. That's where I say, God, would you please help me not do that ever again? Because I I love him and it's awesome. He loved me first. He loved me before, before I knew him. He loved me, the Bible says in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's it's being made right with God. The New Testament and the thought of Christ is that it's me being put in Christ so that when God looks at me, he sees the perfection of Jesus and the perfect sacrifice. So these concepts were so far, they, they were so foreign, I should say, to that which is present in the Old Testament. And the author of the book of Hebrews writes his letter to the church. And I love this. When he writes his letter to the church, he's writing a letter to those who are lapsing in their faith. I love the song we sang this morning, give me faith. I can stir up myself only so much and say, God, yes, I believe, but I can be just like the men and women in the New Testament that says, Lord, I do believe, but there's this little 
smidge that I'm really struggling with believing. Can you please help me with my unbelief? So, so what the, the author of Hebrews is doing is he's writing to the people who have lapsed in their faith. They're spread all throughout the world. He couldn't believe that they didn't realize how much better Jesus was than the old way. And they're lapsing in their obedience and their faith in Christ because there are some people, they were called Judaizers, who came in and said, no, 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 you still have to obey everything in the Old Testament. You still gotta bring the animals. You still gotta do this. You still gotta do... There was all this kind of disunity that was there. And the author of Hebrews is telling them Jesus is better. He lays, out, he lays it out for them by saying this, he's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets that it seems like they worshiped. Well, the prophet Moses, the prophet Isaiah said this. The pro- I mean, that's kind of what they took from it. He's better than Moses. He's better, and he just continues to list out. He says, you've got better hope and better promises because of Christ than the old covenant. And I love what we, we sang another song that referenced the old covenant. Here's the deal. God didn't make a mistake with the old covenant and say, well, I'm gonna kick this out of here. I'm just gonna start something new. No, the Bible says that Jesus fulfilled every jot and tittle of what the old Testament was in order to be the better promise. I'm preaching better than you're shouting, amen? Come on, that's good stuff. So the writer of Hebrews, he's saying his priesthood is better than Aaron's. His ministry is better than Moses. He's got better hope and better promises. His new covenant is better than the old covenant could ever be. His blood is better than the blood that's been spilled for hundreds and plus thousand of years there at the altar of bulls and goats in every way and at every turn. Jesus is better. And so we'd be dumb to not live in that reality. We would, we would be crazy to not understand it with that fresh take. What the blood of bulls and goats could not do, the blood of Christ can do. So I, I hope you're beginning to see that these rituals in the Old Testament really were about the sanctity of God and his living space, keeping the people of Israel alive, and helping them understand right and proper process. But the blood of Christ in the New Testament and the forgiveness of sins that he offers to us is so much better. So just as in the Old Testament though, the sacrifice is brought by a willing individual. The sacrifice would have to be taken from your own herd and you'd have to march through the streets to get to the tabernacle or later the temple to be able to offer up the animal knowing that you did something unintentionally wrong or maybe that you were doing a sacrifice and then offering repayment if you stole something, something like that. In the same way, the sacrifice that's offered in the New Testament was given by a willing individual. But here's the thing, he didn't do anything wrong. He's perfect and sinless without any mark. Do you understand this? What I said just a minute ago, everything that God receives has got to be without blemish. Just put, just draw that string through scripture. The Old Testament sacrifices. Then we see Jesus who was without sin, without blemish. And then when you look in Revelation, he's coming back for a bride that's spotless, without blemish. 
So man, that gives me some conviction in my own heart. Am I giving, not just money, but am I giving what I have to the Lord the best? Or is he getting just the leftovers? So we have to accept Jesus' blood in the same way, just the same way that they would have accepted that the sacrifice was there and done, the sin offering or what we call the purification offering in Leviticus 4. They would have had to understand that that meant that they were pardoned now and they could live in the blessing of a good relationship again. God has provided that sacrifice through Jesus for us. Worship team, would you come and join me? I thought about this in the the preparation of the message. I thought about the fact that, you know, every Sunday that we have church, there's always the chance that we have two categories of people in the room. The first category would be a sinner who's in need of a savior. The second would be something that breaks God's heart as well and breaks mine too, because I've been there. And oh, but the grace of God, we'd all be there all the time. But it's that second category is the believer who's struggling with a pattern of sin, with a pattern of pride. We don't have to think it might be the grossest of the gross. It might be adultery and things like that. But there's oftentimes things that are just under the surface. That's a a chronic issue with bad attitudes or poor judgment or anger towards people or pride, things like that, that we know are not pleasing God, that we chronically struggle with and we're not really living in the freedom of it. If you're a sinner, you have only one hope. This is the message of the gospel. There's no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ and through his blood and his sacrifice. So the Bible says in order to get there and to be with him and his family, we've got to admit that we're a sinner. We've got to ask God for forgiveness. We've got to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he died for my sins, that he raised to life again, and that he's in heaven waiting to come and pick me up, bless God. I've got to believe those things. And then I've got to be willing to change and allow him to change me. And I've got to let him be the Lord and the master of my life. I think that's where the catch is for a lot of people. They're happy to get a rescue out of the middle of the ocean. My wife and I were watching a movie last night about Coast Guard rescue swimmers. You'd be really happy if a storm came up and you were on that ship and the ship started sinking and a helicopter showed up and an expert swimmer came out there with a raft or a crate to be able to pick you up and rescue you and take you. That's what a lot of us are really excited about when it comes to salvation. But what God wants is so much more than that. He wants to not just give you fire insurance from hell. He wants to give you a life abundantly. And to do that, he wants to change some of the stuff about you that isn't great. (laughs) And all of us have it. So we've got to acknowledge that he's our Lord and our master. If we do those things, we'll be saved. But for the believer who's struggling with sin, I love that there's hope. Uh, Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross again. Hebrews is clear that sacrifice is done once and for all, but I have got to acknowledge it and come back to him on a regular basis. If we continue to sin and in the pattern of sin, what we do, the New Testament tells us, and Paul tells the church, he says, what you do is you actually sear your conscience. You actually kind of brand yourself and you have scar tissue in that area and not softness any longer, but hardness and callousness. And then you have the ability to continue on in that sin 
because you've lost the feeling of being convicted over it. And so often it's not in this room that we'd have to talk about something crazy like Tim stealing from his job. But, but maybe there's a place where in his consciousness, he's continued to violate the Holy Spirit the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that lives inside of him, he's continued to push away from whatever it is and he might need God to help him through that. So the Holy Spirit that's given at salvation is given to empower you and me to live the life that God wants us to live.